It's Friday, January 26th. What good is a border breakthrough when you could have a border crisis? We start here. With Congress on the verge of a bipartisan bill, Donald Trump lobbies Republicans to stop. He knows that this is one thing where Biden really takes a hit in the polls. Why his primary success has derailed a potential immigration deal. The Biden administration says you can kiss the recession chatter goodbye. We have an economy that has been growing at a good, healthy pace. With economists encouraged, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen gives an exclusive interview. And if parents can be held responsible for their children's mass shootings, they'll need a better defense than this. Judge, first of all, I was not sobbing. A trial that could set new precedents gets underway in Michigan. From ABC News, this is Start Here. I'm Brad Milkey. So you might not have been following this, but there's a turf war happening on the Texas border right now. A narrowly divided Supreme Court delivering a victory for the Biden administration, clearing the way for federal agents to remove razor wire fencing installed by Texas along 29 miles of the southern border. See, recently, Texas state troopers had put up razor wire along the border with Mexico, saying the federal government wasn't doing enough to deter migrants. Kind of a, if you're not going to stop them, we'll do it ourselves move. The feds said um, the border is our domain. We'll decide what goes there. The Supreme Court has still not decided this case on the merits, but in a surprising decision this week, they did give the Department of Homeland Security permission to cut down that razor wire. A few days later, though, a lot of it is still up. We've seen clothes and other things left by migrants hanging at the razor wire along the border while trying to cross. In fact, Texas officials have posted videos of new razor wire going up along the banks of the Rio Grande. And DHS has sent letters to Texas saying they're being shut out of Shelby Park. They're along the river where lots of migrants have been coming ashore. I think it's a, a political uh, movement that, that they have so they can get more votes. And Some have called this a political stunt designed to appeal to hardcore immigration hawks. But it does speak to how potent an issue this is on the right. And it comes as lawmakers in Washington have been trying to craft bipartisan legislation on the border. Well, yesterday, lawmakers began admitting those efforts may be dead. Rachel Bade is a contributing political correspondent for ABC News. When she's not reporting for us, she's writing Playbook for Politico as their senior Washington correspondent. Rachel, a lot of folks thought we were getting close to like an actual deal here, right? What, what was it supposed to cover in theory? Yeah, I mean, senators have been working on this for several months now. I mean, it all started when there was discussions about Ukraine aid. Uh, Republicans made demands about, you know, if they're going to pass a new tranche of assistance for Ukraine, that they want something for it. I understand what happens if Ukraine fails, but my Democratic colleagues are in denial about the threats we face as a nation from a broken border. They want a crackdown at the border, and obviously this came as we saw apprehensions at the borders reaching like over 10,000 folks a day. I mean, there clearly is a need in these border towns. The city of El Paso only has so many resources and we have come to what we look at a breaking point right now. So a bipartisan group of senators got together and said they were going to try to work out a border deal. And they're, they're very, very close, closer than we've seen lawmakers be 
as far as I can remember. I mean, honestly, and it deals with, you know, increasing money for border security. Uh, It also deals with sort of making asylum harder to claim and sort of changing the asylum process. These are a lot of wins that Republicans have been trying to get for years and Democrats have not been willing to negotiate on these things. Taking Ukraine funding hostage in exchange for hard right border policies make this fight much harder for us to help Ukraine in their fight against Putin. Yet now they have been willing to because they want something for it. They also want Ukraine aid. Only things are starting to go south a little bit, even though we're close. Going south as far as the border, right? I mean, what went wrong? What happened? Uh, One name for you, uh, Donald Trump. (laughs) I mean, look, we always joke on Capitol Hill that the Hill kind of goes dark during presidential years because, you know, it's not just because the campaign trail sucks up oxygen, but Congress usually doesn't do anything in presidential years because the parties are posturing. I've never seen a better time to get structural changes at the border than now. And if we say no all the time, every time, then shame on us. 2024 is really starting to sort of pull things back. Donald Trump has been putting pressure on Hill Republicans not to to sort of go along with the deal because he knows that this is one thing where Biden really takes a hit in the polls, like Biden polls terribly on the border. The fact that he would communicate to uh, Republican senators and Congress people that he doesn't want us to solve the border problem because he wants to blame uh, Biden for it is uh, is really appalling. Earlier this week, uh, during a private meeting, Mitch McConnell told his members or sort of acknowledged to his members, the elephant in the room, that the politics of the border have actually changed in recent weeks, that Trump is basically the nominee and he doesn't want them to do a deal with Democrats on this, that he wants to run on the issue. And he mentioned that perhaps Republicans shouldn't be undermining the guy who's going to be trying to oust Biden from the White House. So this really cast fresh doubt on the prospects of a bipartisan border deal going through. And it really created a whole bunch of chaos on Capitol Hill on Thursday, the day after McConnell made these remarks. There was clearly a cleanup effort by uh, the McConnell office to try to say, look, no, he still wants a bipartisan deal. He's not backing away from it. We are working hard, continuously, to try to get a solution on the border part of it. But look, he was acknowledging a reality up here, and that it's the reality that a lot of Republicans are listening to Donald Trump And they're trying to find a way to potentially get out of this deal because they don't want to give Biden a win. Well, and and so if, Rachel, if there's a conflict here between, I don't know, getting stuff done and the politics of winning elections 10 months from now, is it just immigration that gets affected by that? Or, I mean, what what other issues are potentially on the table that could now sort of fall, fall by the wayside that we're in general election mode? Absolutely. There's also a surprise deal on tax issues uh, that has been unveiled, a bipartisan, bicameral bill that was written between Democrats and Republicans in both chambers uh, to give tax relief to low-income families, basically expanding the child tax credit. Hmm. It also has sort of priorities for Republicans, enhancing business tax credits. It's too soon to tell. I mean, I, I hate using the term, but there's still horse trading in Washington. You know, if they do this, what are they going to give up? This came out uh, just a few days ago, and already we are seeing Republicans sort of squirm about this. In the House, there are a number of conservatives who have come forward and said, look, we don't want to pass this because undocumented immigrants, if they come to this country and have kids in the U.S., they're going to be able to get this tax credit. 
Never mind that this has been the case under both Democrat and Republican administrations for a long time. Now they're bringing this up because they're trying to find a way to sort of derail this tax relief in an election year. So people always ask me, like, how is it that you're so cynical? Well, you know, just cover Capitol Hill for a little bit and you sort of start (laughs) to understand it. It's just really... It's just amazing to see these issues that voters really care about, like the border, uh, tax relief for businesses and work and, and low income families. But, you know, the politics coming in and just really screwing up everything uh, and people sort of just being pulled back because they're concerned about their own reelection or winning the White House. Yeah. And you often see the dynamic of a minority party saying, hey, we don't want to give the current president a win in election year. And you often see the president kind of directing his party in an election year. Rarely do you see sort of an outset, like a candidate for president determining what the entire Congress is going to do. But again, that's the power of Donald Trump and his kind of incumbency, as it were, in the party. All right. Rachel Bade there on Capitol Hill. Thanks for the insight. Thanks so much. And talk about not wanting to give Joe Biden a win. If you're a Republican lawmaker, the economy is looking frustratingly good. When there's a crash, I hope it's going to be during this next 12 months. You might remember Donald Trump earlier this year telling Mike Lindell he almost looked forward to a crumbling economy with high inflation because it would present such a clear choice for voters. But then yesterday, the Commerce Department said the U.S. economy grew last year even faster than expected. Well, thanks to the American people, America now has the strongest growth, the lowest inflation rate of any major economy in the world. And on that same day, in an exclusive interview, ABC's Elizabeth Schulze, one of our Start Here besties, sat down with the Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen. Elizabeth, fascinating timing on this interview. Did Yellen give you the impression the economy is good or is it improving? Because there's a difference, right? No question, Brad, that Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen wanted to make the case that the economy is good. We talked to her after this GDP report showed not only that growth was faster than expected, but this is, remember, a year, 2023, that most economists had predicted a full-blown recession. And here we were. Not only was there not a recession, but the economy grew at a 3.1% rate for the year. That is much higher than expected and higher than the trend. So what Janet Yellen wanted to do was to come out and say, the economy is in solid shape. The outlook that I have and that most economists have is a very favorable one. We have an economy that has been growing at a good, healthy pace. And ultimately, she said, not only did we avoid a recession in 2023, 2024 is going to be a great year, too. She said she sees no reason that there would be a recession this year and went on to say that price increases, especially for day-to-day costs like rent that have still been so stubbornly high, she does expect those price increases to continue to cool. Price increases doesn't mean the same as going down, though, right? You read my mind. Exactly. And this was a point that (laughs) the Treasury Secretary tried to make. Well, I think most um, Americans know that prices um, are not likely to fall. It's not the Fed's objective to Um, try to push the level of prices back to where they were, but to stop them from rising. I mean, she said that's actually a sign of strength in the economy. But the key there then is trying to get the message across to people who are expecting and hoping that prices, whether it's for groceries or or rent or, you know, cars will go back to those pre-pandemic levels. But the Treasury Secretary is saying that's not going to happen but things are still really good, so don't get hung up on that hope. 
Yeah. How much does consumer sentiment feed into all this, Elizabeth? Because if people are worried about their finances, it doesn't matter whether prices are going up. Like, they're still going to be nervous. They're still going to act like nervous consumers, right? Right. And economists generally view consumer sentiment as a what they would call leading indicator of the economy. So how people say they feel will then inform their decisions on how they spend. Mm. And what we've seen is over the past year or two, really negative sentiment about the economy. You have uh, veterans living under bridges. Rent is more expensive than buying a house, but interest rates are so high you can't buy a house. Biden economics suck. Prices have doubled. We're headed in the wrong direction. But in the past couple of months, and especially in a reading that we got just in recent weeks, that has started to take a turn. Surveys show that people are feeling a little bit better about the economy and about their personal finances. We've had an unemployment rate under 4% now for um, a long, the longest stretch we've seen in more than 50 years. And the hope is that that can then translate into people continuing to spend and feel better about the economy. Obviously, for the Treasury Secretary and for President Biden, the hope is that that translates into people having better ratings of his approval on the economy and translating into votes for him in the election this fall. Yeah. How how much will the economy affect the election? Because it is always a question of whether the president impacts prices or whether it's just prices impact the president (laughs) and his chances. Right. And voters, as you know, Brad, always rank the economy as their top issue, if not one of their top issues. And that's because it is the most in-your-face thing every day. What you're spending, do you have a job? That's something that all sides of the political aisle know. And I was surprised that in our interview, Brad, Treasury Secretary Yellen took a really direct shot at former President Trump for how he would handle the economy. This is not something you would typically hear from the Treasury Secretary. We heard J.P. Morgan CEO Jamie Dimon last week say businesses would favor a Trump second term, that his policies were best for the economy. What do you say to Jamie Dimon? Well, wealthy corporations did very well. They saw their tax rate go from 35 percent to 21 percent. But she pretty starkly told me that if Trump wins a second term, that's bad for the middle class. And really did absolutely nothing for the middle class that was struggling. So that's those are not the priorities that President Biden has. The Trump tax cuts did nothing for the middle class. In my opinion. So this was the way that the administration is choosing her a bit to be a messenger on this against the idea that the economy could be better under Trump, which is what a lot of businesses say, maybe not out loud, but it's what a lot of Wall Street expects. Mm -hmm. And it's obviously the case that former President Trump is making. He's made clear that he thinks tax cuts that were passed under him, trade policies, that that was all good for business, and that that's a given that that's going to be a win for him when voters go to the polls this fall. And just one other note here. While the Treasury Secretary wanted to make the case for the strong economy, she did acknowledge that a lot of people are still feeling pain and that there is a lot of inequality in the economy, that people are still struggling to get ahead. And I put it to her directly. Do you think the American dream still holds? We want to make sure that it does. And it does require work to address longstanding problems. She said, It was easier to achieve the American dream when she was growing up Mm. and that there are parts of the country that have not seen economic progress. And until that changes, it will be hard to feel that the American dream is alive and well. 
And that coming from, from, you know, the Treasury Secretary, one of the top members of the Biden administration right now. All right. Elizabeth Schulze, great interview. Thank you so much. Thanks so much, Brad. All right. Next up on Start Here, he's already been convicted of a mass shooting. Now, could his parents go to prison, too? A bizarre trial gets underway after the break. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Have you ever wondered what you would do with an extra hour in your day? I think about this all the time. I'm like, I would be so productive. I'd exercise more, or I'd read a book, or I'd take a nap, like restore myself. We often find ourselves yearning for these extra hours, but the real question is, what would you do if you were making yourself a priority? Well, how about therapy? It can help you discover what's important so you can make the most of your time. If you've ever benefited from therapy, you know how transformative it can be. It's not just for those who have experienced major trauma. Therapy empowers you to learn positive coping skills, set boundaries, and become the best version of yourself. If you're considering starting therapy, you should give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and tailored to your schedule. You just fill out a brief questionnaire. You'll be matched with a licensed therapist. And here's the beauty of it. You can switch therapists if you're not finding the right fit. No additional charge. Take the first step. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash start here today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash start here. We all know there are things in life that you have to compromise on, but when it comes to your health, there should be no compromise. Don't go back to that one doctor, you know the type, like I've had this person before, that doesn't actually listen to you or who seems just in a rush to end your appointment that you spent months making. Instead, check out ZocDoc, the place where you can find and book doctors who will make you feel comfortable, listen to you, and prioritize your health. ZocDoc is a free app and website where you can search and compare highly rated in-network doctors near you and instantly book appointments with them online. You can search by location, availability, and insurance. So no compromises here because with ZocDoc, you got more options than you know. We're talking about booking appointments with tens of thousands of top-rated, patient-reviewed, credible doctors and specialists. Go to ZocDoc.com slash start here and download the ZocDoc app for free. Then find and book a top-rated doctor today. That's ZocDoc, Z-O-C-D-O-C dot com slash start here. ZocDoc.com slash start here. It's an all too familiar scene in America. A young man in a jumpsuit facing a jury for his role in a mass shooting. What's less common is the shooter's parent on trial. The defendant is charged in counts one through four with involuntary manslaughter. Well, yesterday, the mother of a school shooter was led into court in shackles as opening arguments got underway in Michigan. Jennifer Crumley didn't pull the trigger that day, but she is responsible for those deaths. ABC's Trevor Ald has been following this case. Trevor, I mean, what is she being charged with here? So she, being Jennifer Crumbly, Brad, and her husband, James Crumbly, are both charged with four counts each of involuntary manslaughter. This couple's being tried separately because there's a few more witnesses against the husband. But Jennifer Crumbly, the mother, is on trial first, and that trial is happening right now. The deadly school shooting in Michigan at Oxford High School. That's about an hour north of Detroit. Our teacher got paper, taped over the window on the door, and got his two big tables and barricaded the door. A couple years ago, November 2021, their 15-year-old son brought a weapon into school, which the parents gifted to him, and he opened fire. He killed four of his classmates, and he wounded several others. Is it true that your actions on November the 30th, 2021, caused the deaths of Madison Baldwin, Tamir, Hannah St. Juliana, and Justin Schilling? Yes. 
He has already pleaded guilty to a number of charges. He's already been sentenced to life in prison without parole. What we have now with this trial is something that we've never seen happen before in the United States, which is a parent of a school shooter who is facing their own charges. And essentially what prosecutors have said is that the behavior of these parents was so egregious leading up to the shooting with the many missed warning signs, with the providing a weapon, with the not taking him home from school the day of the shooting, even though they were called in to respond to some disturbing drawings and messages, the prosecutors say this was criminal and it was gross negligence, which they believe reaches the threshold for involuntary manslaughter. Well, and so then yesterday, this trial begins. The facts seem so well documented about the shooting itself, Trevor. So, I mean, what what are they litigating? What what were the opening arguments? So the opening arguments, essentially, and there are a lot of elements that we know that prosecutors are going to lay out over the course of the trial. But what they laid out, at least in their opening statements from the prosecutorial side, was the fact that these parents bought a gun for their 15-year-old. This was a purchase celebrated by Jennifer on Instagram. These are her words. This is her post. Mom and Sunday testing out his new Christmas present. My first time shooting a 9mm. That leading up to the shooting, at one point the shooter was caught looking up ammunition in class and the school contacted the parents, which they ignored the school. And then the mother, Jennifer Crumbly, texted her son, LOL, I'm not mad at you. You have to learn how not to get caught. Despite her knowledge of his deteriorating mental crisis, despite her knowledge of his growing social isolation, Despite the fact that it is illegal for a 15-year-old to walk into a gun store and walk out with a handgun by himself, this gun was gifted. Then that day of the shooting, the shooter is caught by a teacher with a drawing that has the exact gun that the parents had gifted to him, that had a person shot on it, that had a number of messages like, blood everywhere and the thoughts won't stop, help me. When she looked at this drawing, she looked at it knowing the context and the origin. The parents were called in. They had a meeting. The school asked, do you want to take your son home? The parents said no. And according to prosecutors, that meeting lasted 11 minutes. They then left, and the shooting happened a couple hours after that. Wait, 11 minutes, Trevor? That's how long the meeting is when somebody says, hey, we think your kid has psychological problems. Like, do you want to take them out of school? All of that goes down in 11 minutes? Yes, according to prosecutors, from start to finish of learning about the piece of paper, and according to prosecutors, Jennifer Crumbly was concerned about the drawing because once the school sent her a message of it, as she was going there, she texted her own husband, emergency, I am very concerned. But apparently she wasn't concerned enough to take her son home, and neither the parents nor the school checked the shooter's backpack, which we now know had the gun in it. And so what did the defense say to that? If this is all about sort of what the mother or, or the father in the later trial, what, what they knew at the time, what does the defense say? So the large crux of the argument is, number one, that they don't feel it's fair to hold parents responsible for the crimes committed by their children. But essentially what we can gather, the argument that the defense is going to make, is that Jennifer Crumbly is not a perfect parent, and we don't claim that she is. But what the evidence is going to show in this case is that the prosecution has very selectively pulled out slivers of evidence from a forest of trees. She was not aware of a number of warning signs that school officials who are trained to recognize these kinds of problems never registered her son as a threat. She was provided the option 
of take him home or leave him here. The shooter struggled when they had online school during COVID. It caused him great anxiety to miss school, and he wanted to stay that day. The school was fine with it. Allowed him that day to return to class without any further questioning or searching, and also that she was not aware in the months leading up to the shooting that all of these problems with her son's deteriorating mental health were bubbling up. You will hear testimony that on the day of the shooting, Jennifer Crumbly went to work. She is essentially the breadwinner at this time. Mr. Crumbly was in between jobs. He's about to get a job offer. Now, what is really going to make this trial interesting and is going to be the entire focus of it is Jennifer Crumbly is planning to take the stand, according to her own attorney. And that's going to be where this case is going to go one way or the other. We know it's going to be highly emotional because already in court yesterday, there were emotional moments during some surveillance footage in the aftermath of the massacre, Jennifer Crumbly and her attorney visibly crying to the point that the prosecutor tried admonishing them, Brad. To have not just the defendant, her lawyer sit there sobbing. So I, that, I did not I, sob. I just, I just want to finish, Your Honor. I just want to finish. Complaining to the judge about their outward displays of emotion, that it was too much, that it was trying to sway the jury. Judge, first of all, I was not sobbing. And this is horrific. This I've is never, horrific. I've never seen this before. Defense attorneys were very upset about that. She was talking about how her eye makeup was still in place. She wasn't sobbing. In any way, all my eye makeup still on. I checked my camera. I'm not going to, I'm not, I'm not having a I need to run to the bathroom. I need a break. Okay. It's already an incredibly emotionally charged trial. It's only going to be amplified once Jennifer Crumbly is on the stand because there are many months of evidence that the prosecutors are going to present that appear to show Jennifer Crumbly was aware her son was in a difficult emotional state, still, along with her husband, bought him a gun, and then, according to the shooter himself, did not keep that gun locked up before he went and killed four of his classmates. I see. So the defense is kind of like, you know, lots of people knew something was wrong. The school is now facing a $100 million lawsuit, but that doesn't mean other people need to go to jail over what this young man did. If this mother gets found guilty, though, you got to think this sets a new precedent and gives parents across the country more to think about, since so often people around these mass shootings are saying, you must have known something was up. Uh, Trevor All, thanks so much. Thank you, Brett. Okay, one more quick break. When we come back, how's this for thinking outside the box? One last thing is next. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts. And one last thing. You ever done an escape room? The game where you gotta do puzzles and break locks and make your way out of a room in a set period of time. Usually it's a group activity, and if the idea of relying on your friends and family to solve logic problems makes your life flash before your eyes, imagine this. Can you hear me? Yeah. <laughs> oh my god, I'm so scared. 
In Barcelona, some game designers have created the world's smallest escape room. It all takes place in a coffin. That's right, the experience has been named catalepsy. That's the medical condition that's caused many people to be buried alive. It's very individual, and we had to, like, scream at each other because I could hear her on the other side. Two players at a time get loaded in a side-by-side -side coffin. The tops close in on top of them, and then they solve a series of puzzles as a pair communicating through loudspeakers for 30 minutes. What? I just have the crucifix. You are also recreating a situation that sooner or later we will all live. You live your own funeral. You can choose your floral arrangements, your tombstone, and a custom funeral service that you can experience yourself, all while you desperately try to escape in the dark. The company, Horrorbox, says they constantly supervise participants on monitors, that players should not be claustrophobic, and that people can stop at any time. They also have a height limit of six foot two, because anyone taller won't fit in the casket. So why put yourself through this? Well, of all the fears in the world, taphophobia, the fear of being buried alive is one of our oldest. It was especially widespread in the 1800s as new medical techniques were teaching doctors just how many patients had been incorrectly pronounced dead. Edgar Allan Poe's story, The Premature Burial, became a hit and eventually was turned into a movie. I'm alive. Can't you hear me? I'm alive, alive, alive. There are stories of people like the composer Chopin apparently instructing his family to stab him upon death, just to be sure. George Washington told Martha he wanted to be left above ground for three days before burial. Funeral parlors began attaching bells to corpses' fingers underground just in case they woke up and rang. Plus, creators say, we'll all have a funeral at some point. Why not experience it when you can? So this is billed as like a two-person event. It's meant to be a double date. So if someone ever invites you like, hey, want to be buried alive together? Girl, run. Start Here is produced by Kelly Therese, Jen Newman, Brenda Salinas-Baker, Vika Aronson, Cameron Chertavian, Anthony Ali, Mara Milwaukee, and Tara Gimble. Ariel Chester is our social media producer. Josh Cohan is director of podcast programming. I'm our managing editor, Laura Mayers, our executive producer. Thanks to Lakia Brown, John Newman, and Liz Alessi. Special thanks this week to Jonah Haskell, Greg Croft, Michael Papano, Cristinato, Abby Cruz, Nicholas Kerr, Layla Ibsa, Surin Kim, and Kelsey Walsh, who seems to know every human in the great state of New Hampshire. I'm Brad Milkey. See you next week. Mm -hmm.